Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather round your word, may we learn how to live each day in your presence and please you in every way. Jesus Christ, as you challenge us with your word, may we take up our cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, as you encourage us through your word, cause your fruit to ripen in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Amen. With the cancellation of this year's championships, on Wimbledon fortnight, the BBC showed classic matches from previous years. And on the days that should have been on the, the women's and men's singles finals, they ran a countdown of the top 10 finals in each field. At number seven on the list of women's finals was one which was memorable for all the wrong reasons. It was the 1993 final between Jana Novotna and Steffi Graf. At that time, no one could match Steffi on grass. She had won Wimbledon four in the previous five years, but she seemed destined to lose in 93. Novotna was playing out of her skin. And although Graf took the first set on a tie break, Novotna stormed through the second set, 6-1, and was 4-1 up with two breaks of serve in the decider. And she was a point away from making it 5-1. It was what commentators sometimes call virtual match point. But what followed was the most staggering collapse. The enormity of what she was about to achieve seemed to overwhelm her. At 40-30, Novotna served a double fault. At deuce, Despite having volleyed flawlessly all afternoon, she put a volley so far out it was lucky it didn't land in the Thames. Her coach was signalling, stop thinking about it, just keep playing each shot. But have you ever tried not thinking about something? If I say to you, don't think about a pink elephant, what image just popped into your mind? Another missed volley in the next point, admittedly stretching for a decent lob from Graf, and the game was gone. And Novotna fell apart. She didn't win another game, she lost 6-4. One of the most touching sporting images I've ever seen was the Duchess of Kent drawing her in for a hug as Novotna stomped on the Duchess's shoulder. In a sense, it wasn't Steffi Graf who beat Jana Novotna that day. It was Jana Novotna. She missed shots she'd have made on any other day, but emotion and the occasion took control of her. It's those who learn to control themselves under such circumstances who become the greats. Over the last couple of months, we've explored the fruit of the Spirit. 
or the character traits that God cultivates in our lives when we allow ourselves to live in relationship with God and immerse ourselves in the awareness of God's love and longing for us. They're described by an early Jesus follower called Paul in a letter in our New Testament called Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. This is our last week in the series and we're thinking about self-control. It could be forgiven though. Is that not a bit of an anticlimax? If you were presenting a list like this, you might want the sort of like, so it comes up to a big finish. It ends on a high. We might have gone for finding peace or love as the greatest virtue. Self-control, well, it seems kind of ordinary in comparison. I suspect Paul couldn't disagree more. For him, this was the high point. Over the weeks, I've often turned to that picture of the prism where the love of God is the white light which, when we immerse ourselves in it, it emerges from us as all the other elements of the fruit of the Spirit. But we could also start from the other end and argue that if we are living in relationship to God to such an extent that we have ourselves fully under control, all the other stuff would fall into place. We would be more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful and gentle. Those in whom self-control is cultivated truly discover the life God has for them. So much of where the other fruit rots, if you like, in our lives is when we struggle to control stuff other than ourselves. Someone doesn't develop as quickly as we like, so we lose patience with them. We're not treated as we think we deserve, so we become unkind. Others fail to live up to what we expect of them, so we lose faith in them. And each of those things is rooted in our expectations. And those expectations may be fair or realistic, but they are our expectations of situations and people. And those situations and people are not ours to control. In reality, in life, there are only two things you can control. One is the present moment, because the past is gone, there's nothing you can do about it, and you're not even guaranteed tomorrow. All you can control is this moment. And the only other thing you can control is yourself. Not other people, not the circumstances which come your way, but yourself and how you respond to what you face. But another issue we have with self-control is that we focus on that word control. And we don't like control. We don't want rules, regulations, laws. We want freedom. And if you don't believe me, look how hard it is to get people to wear a face covering for 20 minutes in a shop. Thinking about self-control conjures up this idea of saying no to stuff. There's that episode in The Vicar of Dibley in which it's announced they can't afford to replace the stained glass window. 
And the vicar says, the world, no, the word can't isn't in the Christian vocabulary. To which someone pipes up, yes, it is. You can't commit adultery. You can't steal. Some of us grew up in a culture where so many things were considered off-limit or at least strongly discouraged for Christians. And we can easily slip into that kind of thinking when we hear the phrase self-control. It can feel quite legalistic. But that's not what Paul's driving at. There are times when it is right to say no. Because in doing so, we're saying yes to something better. For months, we have been saying no to meeting together. And that's not been easy for many of us. In large measure, that's been the result of government guidance, Baptist Union recommendations, insurers, trustee responsibility and all the rest. But it's also because we've been saying yes to keeping our community safe and not putting our health and the health of those we love at risk. Earlier in chapter 5, Paul listed a whole series of things which he urges us to say no to. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, rage. Well, if I can stretch the fruit analogy a little further. The thing about all those things is that they're quite soil hungry. When our lives are full of those things... They suck all the goodness out of the soil. They take up all the nutrients that would enable the fruit of the Spirit to develop in our lives. A while back, I asked you to imagine two communities, one kind of characterised by the kind of things Paul lists in verse 19 to 21, and the other characterised by the fruit we have been looking at over the last few weeks. And I said, where would you rather live? Which area do you think would be considered more desirable? Which would command the higher property prices? Yes, to an extent self-control is about saying no. But only to the extent that it frees you to say yes to something better. When we listen to Jesus, when we seek to follow him, when we take him at his word, it's not that we're behaving in certain ways because we have to or because of what God will do if we don't. It's because Jesus calls us to a better way to live. And self-control is about giving us real freedom. We can think of obvious examples of people who are under the control of a substance or a behaviour and we, and we can see how unfree they are. But are any of us truly free all the time? It might not be drink or drugs or whatever, but we all have our addictions. Some of them have been made into dubious virtues. Work, for example. Some of us are addicted to affirmation. Some of us lack control in how we spend our time. Some of us lack self-control when, when it comes to how we use our tongues. We're not 
self-controlled. Those things control us. They affect how we behave. They stop us being truly ourselves or who God wants us to be. Or think of the phrases we use when we regret a choice we've made. We say things like, I don't know what came over me. Or I don't know what possessed me. It's like we know that feeling of lacking self-control. That feeling of being driven by something other than ourselves and it taking over. Last week I talked about how gentleness was despised in Paul's world. The complete opposite is true of self-control. This time philosophy was in full agreement with them. The path to true freedom was in having control of your passions. Note that it wasn't about being free of passions or not truly caring about anything. Self-control would be a lot easier if we never cared about anything. Virtue comes when you really care, but you keep yourself in check. But why is self-control so hard? Because your brain runs on sugar. Your brain uses 20% of the energy you expend every day and it's pretty much all sugar. And thinking and making good choices is very expensive in terms of glucose. Have you ever noticed how your self-control tends to be lower when you're tired? That's why. When you're low in energy, your brain and your body are likely to take the path of least resistance. And we are a fatigued, overstretched, stressed, underrested generation. A couple of other things about your brain. Mostly we function on autopilot. When you're walking around, you're not actively thinking left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. That's just an energy saving function our brain has. But your brain and mine is essentially lazy. Energy is precious, so your brain doesn't use it unless it absolutely has to. A bat and a ball costs £1.10. The bat costs £1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? If you instantly answered 10 pence, you're in the majority. But you're wrong. The answer is five pence. And the bat is pound five. But it seems so easy. We think we know the answer. So our brain doesn't bother wasting the energy to think about it. And you can see why Paul so often locates spiritual transformation in the mind. He writes to the Romans about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Elsewhere, he writes about taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. So much of the damage we do to ourselves is rooted in our thought lives. We indulge thoughts we shouldn't, which lead to behaviours we know aren't good for us. Or the negative stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, which control how we view, love and treat ourselves. Both of those things snatch away our self-control and stop us immersing ourselves in the love of God. 
They take up all the nutrients from the soil, leaving nothing for cultivating love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness to others and ourselves. So what can we do to help cultivate this in our lives? Well, it seems quite simple, really, but we could allow ourselves space for rest and stillness. If tiredness saps our self-control, take steps to stop ourselves being constantly drained. Allow our minds time to catch up with ourselves. One practice I've used over the last four or five years has been an Ignatian practice called the Examine. I intentionally reflect on the blessings of the days, the struggles. I confess the bad. I notice my moods, times when I've been energised or drawn closer to God, or times I've been drained and drifted from God. It only takes a few minutes, and if there was one discipline, I would wish for every one of you that would be it. It's the one practice which has fostered more growth in me than anything else in the last few years. It's transformed how I think. It helps me spot patterns and take action early. It helps me notice things which break those patterns. Does that mean I've got it sussed? Boy, no. I'm a work in progress and there's a lot of progress to be made. But darker days don't worry me as much as they used to. When I use the examine, I spot them more easily and get to know them for what they are. When I don't practice the examine, I lose sight of that. And it's a way in which I've tilled the soil and allowed the spirit to create some degree of self-control in me. Yeah, there's still a long way to go. But it's begun. So much of what we become begins in our thought life. Watch your thoughts. They become words. Watch your words. They become actions. Watch your actions. They become habits. Watch your habits. They become character. Watch your character. It controls your destiny. What starts in your thoughts shapes who you become. It's been challenging to reflect on the fruit of the Spirit over the last few months. You may, like me, have wondered if God is truly cultivating love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control in your life. And you might just get discouraged as we notice how frequently we fail to exhibit some of them. But before I leave this series, let me take you back to Wimbledon Centre Court as the Duchess drew Jana Novotna in for that hug. As she sobbed into the Duchess's shoulder, Jana heard the Duchess say, Don't worry, you'll be back. You'll win it. Fast forward five years. Novotna has lost another final along the way, but in 1998, she finally lifted the Venus Rosewater dish. 
beating Natalie Tuziat in straight sets. And as she stepped forward to collect that Wimbledon trophy, she was greeted by the same Duchess who said, See, what was all the fuss about? I told you you'd win it. Perhaps the Duchess believed more than Yana. And maybe God believes he can grow his fruit in us more than we do. For God knows what he's doing and he knows we don't do it alone. He seeks to fulfill or fill us with his spirit and shape us in nurturing this fruit in our lives. So I'm going to wrap up with a quote from William Temple, who was Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II. It's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. God's purpose is to make us like Christ and God's way is to fill us with the Holy Spirit. So may we open ourselves to the love of God. May he fill us with the Spirit. May he cultivate in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And so may we become more like Jesus. May we become whom God created us to be. Grace and peace to you. Amen.